Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Creatives Ignite. Used to be called Design Recharge. We're changing our name. We, me and the mouse in my pocket and Ashley. I guess it's more than just me. So today we are going to go through, and if you read the um, the post that was connected to this, it kind of tell my ADHD story. But today, and I did leave it as a cliffhanger you didn't know. So I, Thomas, I'm sure you didn't get to read it, but what I did was, so I, I got tested in my early thirties and the lady, so I really tried hard, you know, to not, uh, to pass it, you know, tried to do it. And it was like a three hour test. And she said, I didn't have ADHD. And then I was working with a client for like seven years and she's finally like, and she's a therapist and she works with a lot of people with ADHD. And she's like, Diane, can I talk to you? And I'm like, sure. And so she said, I think you might have ADHD. Would you be willing to do a test? And I said, sure. And then she's, I mean, after seven years, she kind of knew already, you know, but she wanted me to do the test. So we did a different test, but we're also going to talk about screening and how those things can sometimes be incorrect. Right. And obviously if I was 30 years old or older, I was a professor. I'd been a designer professionally. It wasn't like I was, you know, not able to know how to kind of work with my abilities or inabilities or whatever. And so anyway, uh, but I, I went through this kind of like, oh my gosh, I don't have it. Oh, I just, something's wrong. I'm broken, you know? And then um, I did your test, screening, whatever. Um, I, I did that and I, there was, it wasn't an automatic. I got this thing and then I didn't, ha I hadn't taken my medicines. I was like worried, worried. And then I forgot about it. And then you sent me an email and was like, here's your report. And I was like, oh my gosh. Whew. So we're, we're going to share with them what you found as well. But I'm, I mean, I'm treated by a psychiatrist and a, a therapist and stuff like this for my ADHD. So anyway, that kind of gets them up to today, but uh, about me. So, so sorry about the long winded. It's just really important to me because it gave me, it helped me explain how I think and I think differently maybe. So can you give them, you're a typographer. I like, am. The first time I had you on, you were talking about um, a, a typography and making fonts for Google and type Thursdays, which was in New York and San Francisco and Chicago and all around. And from that, uh, Bonnie Shaver Troop contacted you about making a typeface, which we all can actually use because you were like, hey, Google, this is a really good thing. How about y'all fund it? And they did. Right. So That's then we right. talked we talked about Lexend, which we we use Lydia and I. Lydia wrote this awesome book. Um about ADHD, a car with ADHD. And she asked me to uh, illustrate it. And the, and the, I wrote this, but the, and the, and all of Victor's sounds are always in Lexin. And it was really important. And you got to thank you in the beginning and you and Bonnie, because I wanted to make sure that people knew about Lexin. And then a couple months ago, Thomas, um, I know I said you were going to talk and <laughs> I guess not Thomas. I didn't even need you, buddy. I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, a couple of months ago, Thomas said, hey, Diane, I have something cool. Would you want uh, to talk about it on the show? And I was like, I don't even need to know what it is, Thomas. Heck yes. Let's get on there. Let's do it. And then we met a few weeks ago and you told me all about it. I mean, you had told me a little bit about it before, but I was in I was just in awe. So that gives them a little bit. You also teach typography. Can you just tell them a little bit about what you do? currently and then this new thing 
I know. I mean, I'm exhausted hearing this story. <laughs> how much am I done in my life? Jesus. Uh, that's a very good summary of the journey of how, you know, we've had, you know, it's funny. I think the big theme is relationships and Diane, me, you both have one. We've been, we've known each other for years now. And, you know, I was very excited to come speak with you today because, because it's, it's a continuation of that journey. It started with type design in general, right? We brought me in to talk about my, the Google font improvement project we worked on. That interview led to the meeting with Bonnie, the introduction to her, which led to the development of the Lexan font series. And now we're together here talking about this new venture, Readable Technologies, which is the next building on the same idea, the exploration of reading and the kinds of people who do read. And the idea was when I remember when this journey all started, when I first met Bonnie, was not realizing how significant literacy problems are. Um, you know, I teach at the University of, of New York in the CUNY system. I teach at Queens College. I've taught at FIT. I've taught at City College. I've taught in all these universities. You know, and not once did it ever cross our minds to assume, what if these students can't read well? Or what about the people who are making this books, magazines, posters, texts for? And sure, we might think we're in a meme world where everything's just images and videos and all that. But all, all significant information, medical exams, voting, civic policy, decisions making in terms of finance, and also just the more the kind of the complexities of culture and life, they're not communicated through anything but text for the most part. So very much uh, lit- literacy is very much connected to citizenship, being part of society, and ultimately freedom in the sense of living a life. Because one of the most powerful things about reading, especially long form reading, I think that's actually a very important thing to point out, is when we read either nonfiction or fiction, it gives us stories and worlds that are not our immediate reality. We get so caught up in the existence of just immediate gratification and stimulus. How, when you go on Twitter, you're just hitting bombarded with information and, and perspectives versus reading narrative, either nonfiction or fiction, long form, that text reading literacy gives you access to, gets you to transport your mind to worlds. You, know, you can read Aristotle, you can read Thomas Aquinas, you can read... Uh, Gibbons, you can read all these great thinkers at any time, if as long as you have access to literacy. And I, as I said, when we work and designers, I think we're we kind of take for granted unless we came from lower economic status situations ourselves. We don't realize the, preva- the prevalence of reading difficulties. They, call, they come from many causes, but the major part is that on the United States in general, about 65% of the reading po- of the population are not reading proficient. More than half of adults or read lower than a sixth grade level. These are constant, steady values. And this is not technology. This is just how it's been for a very long time. So the whole point of this conversation is the development of not just fonts that can improve reading. And they can. There's been great stories to show that this has great impact in people's lives. But how can we potentially detect reading problems and then propose interventions? Like actually tell you what font works for you. So that led to this whole crazy adventure during COVID. COVID occurred, and I went down in this great journey of exploration of mentorship and reading and research to come out the other side with a better understanding of reading, the patterns of reading, and using technologies from just a simple webcam, how we can detect the reading status of a person, either dyslexic or ADHD, in 90 seconds. But you also, when you were talking with a, and you're working with uh, people who, have done computer vision technology. You were, I mean, this wasn't like just a whim. You actually 
dove deep into academia and and people who are doing studies like this. But one of the things when you talk to that person, you actually laughed because you were like ADHD, buddy. We're talking about dyslexia, you know, and reading proficiency. We're not talking about ADHD, but it was anyway, give them that. That's super important. I mean, I very much the importance of everyone else in my life in terms of mentors and advisors are so important. Um, so this was Richmond Alaki. He's a computer vision expert uh, in the UK. He, I found him online. It's actually, it's, again, it's a similar story. People finding people online, never met him in person. I found his articles, writing article series in computer vision and machine learning. And I reached, I approached him after I did some preliminary research where, okay, I can't do any of the out of the box solutions. We're going to have to do our own thing. I need, I need someone to guide me in what direction to go in. I reached out to him. And I gave him the overall description of what this project was about. And I asked him, would you mind if I just check in with you once every two weeks? You just give me a general direction where to look. And like any good mentee, I'm going to listen to what you're saying. I'm going to execute and come back with results. I did that for about three months. He eventually was, and eventually working together, we built up a, a job, a, a project description on the actual tool. And he joined as an advisor on that. And he and basically became an advisor of the project. As we worked on developing this technology, as you said, Diane, the original purpose was to detect dyslexia. That's what most of the literature was talking about. Using eye tracking, we could find distinct eye patterns in dyslexics compared to proficient readers. That's true. Richmond, the, the advisor, was the one who commented after seeing the initial results. He has no background in education. This is a computer vision expert. He said, no, I think, I think we can also pick up ADHD. He claimed it. I laughed because I was like, no way. That's not even in the wheelhouse of my expectations. Um, but we said, you know what? Richmond believes in it. So let's add it as criteria. Let's look into it. And we did. And when we did our pilot study, amazingly, we found that we were 88.6% accurate in dyslexic identification and 86.6% accurate for ADHD. So it's very much like this is a very important story for anyone listening who's interested in building companies and organizations and projects, keep your ears open. Don't be so dismissal to anyone who's giving any input because um, they might give you the revelation or something that opens a whole new avenue of impact. So I also want to talk about that number because I had I had been disdiagnosed. Hmm, there's my dyslexia coming in, in my speech, right? Um, Disdiagnosed. Misdiagnosed. So yes, misdiagnosed. I know, I get tripped up sometimes too. You know what I said. Okay, so I had been misdiagnosed and then diagnosed again. And this is one of the problems with ADHD is that it takes time. It also sometimes you need to have, I mean, seven years I had been working with this client and she finally was like, I think this is what you have. This is what maybe what you have. You struggled with this. And so um, at this point, I was 46, I think. So I wasn't... um, I didn't care, you know, it wasn't going to bother me if uh, somebody thought that it actually was a confirmation that somebody, because that other lady in my thirties, she was like, no, you don't have it. And I was like, and that test took three hours, that one mm-hmm. test when it was over $200, I never went back and saw that woman except to get my report or results. And then, so again, this takes time. So seven years for Beverly now, granted, I didn't go to her for that, but then I did the test and it was, again, it's an office visit, at least two office visits. The other one took three hours and was two office visits. Um, and so these things cost money and then take a lot of time. And they sometimes obviously aren't accurate. 
even the three hour one that I had to, you know, I wish they would have said, hey, um, treat today like you would a normal day. Don't try so hard. Just do whatever. Right. Because that was Beverly kind of set the uh, stage for me um, in that when she did it the second time I was tested. So I was super anxious. I was like, oh, no, because Thomas had said, take it, you know, when you're on your medicine and then I'm running out of medicine and I'm like, oh, no, it's spring break. So I didn't really care. You know, I didn't have to have my medicine this week. Um but I'm picking it up today just so you know. So maybe that's why I can't even say misdiagnosed. Anyway, so, but that's the other thing is some of the other screenings or tests or, or uh, I'm not sure what the proper name is. Yes. But they are not as accurate as 86%. You know what's, yeah, I'm, let's cover that really clearly. So the main thing is um, dyslexia and ADHD require medical diagnosis. So what we do is that the difference between a screener and a diagnosis, a diagnosis allows for medication, accommodations, it allows for all these acts, right, from medical professionals or educational professionals. Screeners simply point out there's a risk. Now, what we're pointing to our pilot study is, is a great first step to show high confidence in our screener capacity. And in the future, with more review by medical experts and peer review, uh, that this would eventually be considered a diagnosis tool. But as of right now, we are what we're confident about is that it's a very effective screener. And what you're commenting about, Diane, was the biggest, the biggest significant revelation for ADHD, right? Is that it is, does take a very long duration to review because you have to see prolonged, repeated problems that have significant harm on the subject. Right. That's what means diagnosis. So, by the way, so you might be. This is why the issue actually with adults, you might be a functioning ADHD person, for example, right? There's no dysfunction in your life. You're not having car accidents. You're not in drug abuse. You're not uh, actually a very significant one for ADHD people is very violent relationships, like very uh, inability to regulate emotions, negative emotions that causes a lot of conflict in relationships, for example, or for or even like things like not not effective at school at work, for example, that's the most common areas you would see it. Um there's plenty of people who would actually be legitimately diagnosed if they did have harm issues, but they don't. But the thing is, what you're saying is that you always get this intuit. You had this intuition, Diane, that something was different about you. Something was off or just not the norm or not typical. And I think a lot of times it's just, you know, I think knowledge is power. So I think it's very important, even if you are a functioning ADHD person. I think a lot of times, especially, I know Frank colleagues who are ADHD diagnosed, They've constantly had huge issues of, me- of like mental health and self-esteem where they felt like I'm not good enough. I'm broken. Like all the advice I'm being told how to be more effective in business and school and work and relationships isn't working for me. So I must be wrong and broken. No, you're just different. You know, it's just a different setup. It's like, basically it's, it's, I use the example of, it's almost like, just because I'm near, we're both nearsighted, Diane, doesn't mean we're broken or wrong people. We just need a different intervention. Right. Different magnitude and intensity. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so I think that's the biggest point about this whole journey. Is and that's a message for adults too. I was going to say it's very common for adults to be not diagnosed because one, I think traditionally um, anyone basically went to school before the '90s. It really wasn't identified very often. It was just you were lazy or something was wrong with you. You know, it was a lot of things that have affected mental health, but you just went through your life, right? It was and. A lot of times the symptoms might be masked, might seem like depression or anxiety. 
So it happens a lot. A lot of adults are diagnosed for those conditions when in reality it's ADHD or a combination of thereof. So there's a lot of potential, no one's in a fault here. It's just, it's a very complicated condition to identify, mostly because there has to be harm for being considered a diagnosis when you may not have harm, but you're just, you're functioning, but how easy is it for you? How can you move through life kind of easy or is it you're just stuck in water? I've heard testimonies of people with ADHD where they're just saying like, I'm living my life, like I'm, I can do it, but I'm just like in like knee high water or uh, excuse me, uh, hip high, like water up to my waist where I have to like trug through the effort to get through the day effectively. And I think it's just having knowledge of just knowing that you are this case, you have this, you're at risk at least, and you should just be aware this is a possibility. I think it's very empowering just how to go through your life in a more effective manner. Uh, just for the specific individuals with ADHD. And it can take time. And that's the thing is that, you know, it's expensive, as you're saying, it can be very expensive. I, for, uh, I have for insurance. This, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, no, just saying, I just read an article for, I mean, it's related to dyslexia, but it holds the same point holds. The average cost is about $5,000 for diagnosis for children, for di- children of diagnosis. For adults for ADHD, exactly. It could be multiple trips. They can cost about $200 up to $2,000. That's not if you have insurance or not, by the way. Uh, it's a huge issue. There's 13, even now with Obamacare, like the Obamacare and whatever, in the United States, for example. I know everyone outside of America is like, what? You don't have health insurance? No, it's a thing. Right. It still is. It's still 13 million of adults who are not insured, for example. Um, it's a problem. It's a cost, let alone time issue. It's just a cost issue. And we're hoping our product is very affordable, very effective, speedy in time. And it gives, gives, empowers people to have better insights. And I think also the other side say, maybe it's not ADHD. Maybe it is anxiety. It could easily be the other side, by the way. And that's the thing that's so powerful is that our, our instrument does, it basically draws out the executive functional aspects of reading. Because reading is one of the most complicated phenomenon a human being does. It's not naturally born. It's something we learn. And it combines both our visual or auditory sound identifying and word identifying, which is in the frontal lobe section, and executive function to kind of put this all together and focus to do the reading procedure. So because of that, especially the way we do the test where you have to read out loud, it demands a high level of executive function and intention to do it. So for there are distinct eye patterns between proficient readers, dyslexic readers who have a phonological processing deficit, and ADHD individuals which most of the literature points is an executive function disorder. This is incredibly important because, for example, if reading problems is, is a common symptom of dyslexia and ADHD, the interventions are completely different. You have to intervene on them very differently if you have a phonological problem versus a executive function problem. So that's why this tool is such, I think, it's a great gift. I'm super, I, was, I never knew. Who knew? Me just, this, I was just super excited. This all started, by the way, with ending the project with Bonnie and asking the question, well, how do we, if the thesis of that project is every, every individual for a certain population of people who need this font, they're individuated. You can't just give one font to everybody. So how do we know which font is the right one for the person? And this led me down the path of thinking about how can we measure reading performance and the traditional methods were what's called fluency test. So it's meaning like a subject reads out loud text, someone's listening, they, ne- they notice when they make errors, a pronunciation or wrong word or something like that, or skip the word, they note it. And then they basically count out how long they took to read it. They minus the amount of words they said wrong. And then they divide the word said correctly against 
the minutes set, and then you get a words correct per minute uh, measurement unit. So it's perfectly good, good measurement. It could work, but that doesn't answer the question. You have to then do this process over and over and over again to find the right font for you until you find the one that gets the right and, uh, fluency. And this was one of the things that kind of started this is that you were asking Bonnie, um, well, how do you test? Like, do you just put this font and she tell them what you told me? How oh, yes. The whole point is that you have to basically expose the, the subject to the text and you have to just keep testing. You basically just kind of kind of ladder. So you kind of like step forward. You keep going until you find a drop in, flu- in the fluency. So this, this requires time and it just requires a, ma- a manual process. And it's perfect. That works, that's a perfectly good method. If you have five fonts to review, four fonts, three, that's perfectly fine. But the problem with Lexan as the way it was designed, it was conti- it, as, it's not discrete jumps, it's continuous. So it's basically like going to the eye doctor. I mean, anyone has eyeglasses knows this procedure. In the, the, first, the first lens switch, Super easy. You can tell better or worse. Very easy. By like the by like the fourth or third switch, not that easy. Very difficult. Uh, so now imagine that and lenses still have a very still just relatively discrete jumps, even if they get finer and finer. Now take that even further on digital technologies like fonts. So yes, yeah, so this is where computer vision was supposed to answer by measuring eye behavior. There's 30, there's no, excuse me, there's 40 years of research on the correlation between eye movements and reading uh, and finding that there are distinct patterns resulting in the reading behavior. So we know from the eye behaviors, how the reading performance is occurring. There's plenty of literature on that. Uh, And then from that, the quick question was, this has been going on since the seventies, 60s, 70s, around that time, a little actually earlier that actually the most earliest recordings of this measurement of eye patterns and reading is 18, 90 around that time period. Uh, so very early period. Uh, but what's happened was the problem was that the apparatus to measure was incredibly either intrusive or expensive. The most intrusive form I can give you was basically a contact lens that goes directly on the eyeball to measure as you're reading. A little aggressive uh, as a strategy. It actually have a cord attached to it, right? It actually would correspond. I know it's amazing. God bless them for doing it. It's amazing that that, that, that willingness to do it. Um, eventually became eye tracking glasses, so like specific peripherals would go on. So like a, like an eye, like the, the industry standards told me two glasses, but think of an Oculus, right? Kind of works the same way. Uh, measuring the eye behavior basically through the camera. But the problem was that was less in, obviously less intrusive than uh, contact lens on your eye with a cord attached to it, but it was very expensive. It was like $14,000 for each one. So you, you can't do this outside of a laboratory environment, let alone help millions of people around the world get reading measurements that are eye behaviors, for example. Computer vision then is a, is a discipline of machine learning that takes basically like webcams, like this basic webcam we're using to talk to each other. And can we use that to measure the pupil behavior? Because you and, said you were like, there must be, if yeah. it's 14000 or $20,000 machine, there mu- it's 2020 because this is when you were doing this. There must be a better way. There, there cannot- has to be. Yeah. And what that's what I love. This wasn't your area, but this is, I think, the designer brain. You know, they're like, hmm, there must be something else, another way to do this. You, you get know? a niche. Yeah, you get yeah. to do like, oh, there's got to be a better way to do this. There has to be. Uh, yep. And the answer was yes. That was exactly what happened. Um, it just so happened. Remember, as I was thinking that a paper came out from Google in Nature. It's, very, it's a very well-known journal for research. 
basically stating what I confirmed, which was, oh, the webcam, they were able to reproduce the results of a Toby 2 glasses, the industry standard in eye tracking technology with just the basic webcam of a cell phone. That's when I knew. I was like, it's on. Uh, and that's where I met. I recently reached out to Richmond, right? Got him and joined as an advisor. We found the engineering team. We basically built up the original prototype. And, you know, very excitingly, we did our pilot study. We saw the great results. And now we're ready to launch on March 15th, the official product for adults. So they can get screened for ADHD and dyslexia uh, in 90 seconds. So that's so in- the journey That's the journey we've gone to. But it started out maybe just doing dyslexics and then uh, Richmond. Richmond, yes. So Richmond, he was like, oh, OK, well, how about ADHD? You laughed. You're like, whatever, let's try it. And then it was it was significant. And so I know I don't know if you have my thing in front of you. I do. I have your actual. I was going to I was going to say, let's Please. show you the report. Let's so we show can actually them. Go over it. So I have it just so y'all know. And and Phil Meggs, who um you maybe know who he wrote the history of graphic design, right? Do you, do you know that? Yes. Book? He wrote a lot of typography books too. He was one of my teachers in grad school and he asked me if I had dyslexia. And I was like, I don't think so. But um, I, I was, I just thought it was funny because at that point I hadn't been tested for anything. But uh, when you guys see the report, you'll see for sure I have ADHD. Yeah. Okay. Here, I'll say before then, let me just walk you through. Like, I don't want to, I want to leave us a little suspense. So what I'm going to first show is our example, like on our report, we show an example of a proficient reader and dyslexic reader. So let me show that first. Hey, show that first. Okay. So the blue, what this chart is showing is the measurement of the eye as is reading a piece of passage of text out loud. The blue one is showing, if you generally see that there's a basically like this very continuous slope and then this big drop. That big drop represents the eye going back from the right side of the page to the left side of the page. So it's relatively controlled. There's some variance that's being, when you see these bumps kind of going up and a little up and a little bottom, it means the eye is going a little ahead and a little back. Those are saccades. The ones when they're going back, they're called regressions. Um, And if you notice the actual, so crazy about it, remember the fact that we even see a slope at all is because the eye is overall over a duration of time reading across the page in a regular controlled manner. Now the red graph you're seeing here is a dyslexic person. So the dyslexic person is, as you can see, they still have a basic slope. You actually kind of almost see they line up roughly the same where the eyes are turning back, but along the slope, notice that there's all these extra spikes. So this is the, this is the subject reading out loud and the basically the correspondence of their eye jumping ahead rapidly and jumping back to where basically they're almost getting lost in place, but very, but with enough knowledge to recalibrate as they're moving across. And these Um, are all adult readers, correct? These are adult readers. Okay. Yes. Although surprisingly, we tested, we, we haven't published these results yet, but for children and it actually literally confirms it. um, There are some differences in in children in their eye behavior but they hold up pretty similarly. Like you will not, you won't get an extremely different chart. There are some differences, but not that much. And and the Um, other thing is this test was, it was less than five minutes. I don't know how long it was. It was, uh, I was just reading out loud and look, I had my hand on my chin like this, right? And I was just looking and I was reading out loud and, um, and, and that that was it. But it was very, very short. There was no seven years or three hours. 
I just want to make sure that people understand what I was actually doing or any of these people were doing. They yeah. were just sitting there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, actually, a fun sign up before I, I, I kind of to kind of more tease the anticipation of what the ADHD readers chart looks like. Right, I know you example. did good. Yeah. Yes. Um, is that that actually that note the so yes, you're reading four passages of text out loud. There's some particular inside baseball what's going on there, which we don't need to talk about. But the main idea is you're reading these four short passages of text with uh, that whole hand on the chin thing. That's another recommendation from Richmond to give them credit because. We had, because actually people don't realize when they're reading out, when they read text, they actually do. Some people do this. They're like moving like this. We've seen the camera videos, like the data to verify that. More often people do this. They're rotating their head. So those things can basically cause noise in our data. So though we were thinking, we we're sitting together, like, what are we going to do uh, to control that? And Richmond actually is an alpha and comment. Oh, yeah, we can make people like rest their chin. On their hand as they read. Uh, everyone laughed. It was a joke. I was like, I listened to him. I actually thought about it for a second. I was like, no, we're doing it. They were like, everyone was like, what? I was like, no, we're doing it. I think that would actually solve our problem. And it did. It actually much, it much, it very much stabilized the reading behaviors. And this is huge because the biggest problem with this technology is noise. Because especially with, forget adult children, is they just, how, how is he going to make a child stay still? Uh, so that's the why this is a huge deal that we can a rather simple innovation or just simple intervention, just asking someone to read with their hand on their chin, for example, allows them not to like go crazy, move around the screen or move tilt their head in different directions. Okay. So with that said, so we see these two slopes. Main they both have this general slope drop pattern behavior, with then the dyslexic person having more variance along the slope. Like the gentler lines are more noisy, basically. So what's the ADHD person? Here's the surprise. No slope. There's no slope. It's just gone. It doesn't exist. We actually didn't believe. We at first we didn't believe it. We were like, this is not. This is like an error. It has to be an error. How could this be possible? <laughs> uh, but we verified it time and time again. And there, for these individuals, they don't have a reading pattern like normal readers. Why? We don't know. I mean, the short answer is the literature is very loose on this, um, at least my research of it. I have a personal opinion that I don't have, think I can take it as a grain of salt of opinion. Um, when we're reading, we have what's called uh, fovea vision, paraphobia, and then peripheral. Peripheral is the one, right? Like someone waves at the corner of your eye and you notice it. Peripheral is excellent for motion detection. It's very good for that, but terrible for, for particulars. But very, very bad for detail focus. Phobia is the exact opposite. Very focused. It's the dead center of your pupil. It's the most precise vision you have. And it's very targeted. Paraphobia is that zone between, right? It's basically you kind of like, as you're looking dead center, just like something in, you can sense something in the rough, like it's basically like they use degrees to measure it. It's basically going from like a two degree range to about five degree range, like that change. That's paraphobia. We go to five degrees of range for the eye versus two degrees. Um, my hypothesis is that for individual ADHD, because, because of the tendency to regardless of the reason, I don't have a reason yet why it happens. I have some, I have some intuitions about, it, but I don't have anything solid. Basically they don't really cross the whole line. What they're doing is they're focusing on a very fixed area of the page. And then they're relying on paraphobia to complete the line. So they're not, their pupils, not their fairway vision is not going with the end of the line coming back. 
Instead, they're locking into a certain range and letting the paraphobia hit the rest, which then actually causes, I have seen this in literature, more propensity was called vertical movements. So remember, this is only covering the X coordinates of the eye. We're not, we're not measuring the Y coordinates. So there is literature, the ones who do the, the computer vision that does measure the Y coordinates, the up and down movements. ADC people have way more eye up and down movement. Probably the reason, what reasons we don't know, probably as because they're relying on paraphobia and they need to go next line, they make it confused. Basically they get confused what line they're on and then whoop, they kind of like go up and down and back. Uh, so anyways, this is all hypothesizing about what the chart is showing, telling us. But the point is the chart exists and these individuals have this pattern. So now with all this setup, explaining these examples, we'll see Diane's. Yeah, let's see mine. <laughs> I mean, and that's what's kind of fun, right? Is that it's, it's, we don't need mathematics. Like we don't even have to run the algorithm. We have an algorithm that makes a prediction. Like based on this, we think you're at, if you're at risk for dyslexia or ADHD, I don't even need to give you the prediction of the algorithm. Like you can just see visually, it's very clear. It's not proficient. <laughs> and it's certainly, uh, dyslexic might, the algorithm might pull up. It's actually such a, no, basically a very, unsloped pattern. Um, our algorithm might be necessary to detect the dyslexia if it does exist in there or not. But the main thing is just visually because it's, it's a very, that's so powerful. This is empirical. This is directly in front of you. And the thing is also it's consistent over time, right? So we, we're doing four tests. So patterns should hold if you do this test multiple times and they do. So and you were using, through, you were using different Lexin fonts. So yes. Right. So that was the other thing. You're actually combining two things together, right? Yeah. I so mean, let me, I'll jump to the four by four made. to describe this. So yeah, what we see is for proficient readers, they are unaffected by the, the font change. So their slope, as you can see here, the slopes are pretty standard. Tops are just or deca, like and deca, the tightest spaced. The change in the text is um, a simple text, like a basically a third grade level. The second text is a Supreme Court abstract, so 1400, very high level. Uh, and it's not even like the words are complicated. It's actually, it's not that it's like legal terms or things no. you may never run into. It's right. just the structure, the syntax is just so way more complicated. As yeah. you know, Diane, you went through the test, you know. Yeah. yeah. So the other part is that the change in font for proficient readers, it's, there's not much of a change. Like in terms of when you run an algorithm against this, we don't see much of a change. But for dyslexics, they do. Their variance changes. So notice the degree of spikes we see on the top one. There's still spikes in the bottom one, but not as much. It's not yeah. as pronounced. Zeta, Zeta, Zeta? Zeta, yeah. Zeta was better than Deca, right? That would be for a this, better- For this individual. Right, for this. But, and again, now, but it's like glasses. It's which one is individual to me. And that's what's great about Lexin is that it's a variable font that I yes. could set it for me if I was that person. Okay, keep mm -hmm. going. Correct. And that's the point. And then actually, this is, this is how we are able to, to detect dyslexics is because they're the only population that are affected by the font. Oh. The other groups don't. So ADHD individuals, and that's the main thing too. Notice that their slopes are like, basically their behaviors are basically the same. It's more or less the same behavior. There's some variance, but overall you sense that the main idea is a good, a good instrument should be able to reproduce the same result. So if we, if it shows the same pattern and repeat it over and over again, we can be reliant that this is a good steady instrument. It basically, to give you an analogy, if we're checking your blood pressure, if 
it's 90 over 80 and then 150 over 200, you know, and it's just varying wildly the result. That's no good. That's not a good instrument. Uh, and by use of your own eyes, you can see that this instrument holds up across four different tests of the same subject, for example. Okay. Right. Um, so you anyway, so laugh that's- when you're taking your blood pressure. One time my dad, my mine was really high. I'll just tell you this really random. And he was like, Diane, now relax. And he yelled at me to relax. And I just yeah. started laughing. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this what they do to you at the doctor's office down? He was yeah. just so he wanted me to relax so bad that he was just, you know, he was very impassioned that I was that I, my blood pressure was too high. But yelling at me did not did not help. Did not help. Yeah, it does happen. Actually, a lot a lot of um, I was talking to my friend who's pregnant. A lot of women, mothers have this problem. Uh, they because because there's hypertension from pregnancy and they have the anxiety about the fact that they're getting checked for high blood pressure. So it causes a mental loop effect. Yeah, this was just my dad. Um, this was just me being 30 and getting diagnosed with high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Thanks, yeah. mom. Thanks, dad. Good for the times. greatest, uh, uh, whatever, you know, genes. Yeah, good times. So. <laughs> okay, so so in um, we talked about this and seeing it, that it didn't dr- dip, it didn't. Um, and it was really because we were we we're just kind of focusing when we're not our, our eyes aren't like scanning left to right, like maybe a proficient reader would. Correct. Yes, that's, that's my hypothesis is that what's happening is that you a dyslexic ADHD person, their focus is on a very narrow section of the page, but they're reading out loud. See, that's the part everyone's that's the thing where everyone's like, what is this? Because the fact that they're able to read out loud, no issues. But their eye behavior is not doing what we expect. That's what, regardless of what's causing it, the very fact that it's so individual, it's such a distinct pattern. It's uh, that's what's made. That's what made, allows our accuracy to be so good. So Jen asked adult reader, "What age is the cutoff?" Just curious if my nineteen-year-old daughter would benefit from this testing. So when we're saying about basically adult versus child, we're talking about in the context of screeners, like screening for kindergartners or pre-K. So these are is, these are children who don't have necessarily linguistic access yet. Like they're not dealing with sentences, for example. Um, that's where this is, this is where it's a relevant point of distinction. So if you're reading sentences, you're basically good to go. So that basically means um, third grade is usually the base mark we can, our tool could be used to. Uh, anything below third grade, um, we haven't tested. We don't know if it works. So the short answer is if, uh, Jen, if you have a 19-year-old, that's absolutely no problem. That's actually perfectly competent. So uh, I, I want to ask this. Then I, then this will be available. I think people can get on your – I'm going to have a, a link that they can uh, go in, and then they'll get on your list, and then they'll – whenever it is available. But one of the things is that you want this to be very – not $200, not $2,000, not $20,000 kind of units, no. right? That you really wanted it to be accessible, right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean the main the big the main cost is uh, it could be up to two hundred dollars for initial test, and then you got to do for multiple tests. So this could look up to be easily four hundred five hundred dollars. Could be up to thousands of dollars. Absolutely. So the purpose of this is to I make this affordable, so we can basically do a very quick rapid test. So we're hoping to test market this at nineteen ninety nineteen ninety nine. US dollars. So basically it's a 
you could basically take this test with a very affordable price. It's very rapid, very quick. And I think absolutely, Jen, I think it's absolutely, I think a huge value. So even as a screener, it's just a, such an obvious thing. I think you should definitely, uh, if you're suspicious, that's the whole point. That's the biggest issue. It's like, you might be hemming and hawing and getting a proper diagnosis because you're like, I don't know, like four hours, three hours and hundreds of dollars just to get told I don't have it. I'm like, eh, that's not, that's a big, that's a big cost, both in time and money. This is a much rapid thing. 90 seconds, $20. We, I think I think it's a very easy decision from there. Okay, so what? Why is screening for ADHD so difficult with the current tools that the industry has? I mean, to be fair, because two notes. One is it's not that it's difficult per se. It's just that one of the major requirements of diagnosis is harm. It has to be harm to you in your life in your daily functions. If you don't have that, you will not get a diagnosis. So you have to be in distress in some mode or manner, either fun- usually functionally in school or work or emotionally. Those are usually the indicators that, that you have to have that component. If you don't have that component, you will not be diagnosed. Even if you are in actuality ADHD, like you have the biomarkers to signify it, you will not be diagnosed because you do not have harm in your life. That doesn't mean you can't do things in your own life to manage because even anyone, anyone who talks about Treatment of ADHD, it is not just medication. And that's to be very clear. Um, it's not just medication. You have to have behavioral adjustments, usually uh, CBT treatments, things like that, or other methods where uh, you're managing your ba- daily habits and, and executive function management so that you can function well. So that's the thing. Even if you're not diagnosed, you can still budget you having the knowledge that you are in at release at risk by our screener telling you in ADHD, you can look up resources for how to have a more effective life in your work in school in chores and in relationships, for example. I know that it has been very um, uh, refreshing just to know. So it is kind of that in uh, how Lydia writes in the book and she gets to a place, uh, well, Victor, not she, but she did, she wrote the books. And so um, he was just like, um, well, can you fix it? You know, cause, uh, Nick, the doctor kind of, uh, diagnoser, right. He was like, there's nothing wrong with your brain. It's just, let me show you how to use it. And I think it is, um, for me, it was just like, oh, there isn't anything wrong really with me. I, this, because this gave me a name for it. So it was really, really, yes. Jen says less guilt and shame. Absolutely. So, but for me, the not being diagnosed and then being diagnosed um, and then taking it again, I was a little worried. But this to me was hugely in 90 seconds. I can't I really can't believe it, but I'm bad measure of time. So um, if it was 90 seconds, that's that's great. Um, but that those are it was interesting to know that in that amount of time I could get you could tell to see if if that was what it was and what, what we would be able to do with this if we weren't tested or we, we could actually take it to our doctor or to our therapist. And then because, and this is one of the things that Thomas is working on and getting this and not just doing this, but doing the academic route as well and doing the testing, um, doing the, the 
psycho or whatever like they do in psychology in the psychology department they'll go and have test subjects and they they're not just testing two people and seeing right so this is uh, just like you did with lexan there were a body of people that you were working from and then again it will lead to further research but that's the thing i think that uh hopefully that other people um you we will be able to take this now just like i took the thing that Beverly had given me and, but this is so much faster and a whole lot cheaper. You know, and that, and that's the thing like seeing is believing. So the whole point is that you coming in with empirical documents to show, Hey, look, look at these points. Um, when we launched the product on March 15th we'll, we'll, with your report, we'll be, we're submitting a uh, paper to a major academic journal called the triple SR for research and reading. And, we're going to provide that, that at least at least right now, the draft that's going out, it's being peer reviewed now or in April will be reviewed. So in the meantime, at least people who are taking in or getting our results, you'll have it, you'll have literature, empirical research literature you can share with your doctors and with the empirical evidence so that they can take you seriously. Sometimes they won't take you seriously for whatever reason. And by the way, you know, it, there is a social, economic and racial dynamic to it. They de- Diagnosis of ADHD, ADHD and dyslexia is un, is unevenly, disproportionately given to higher economic and white uh, individuals. Um, partly, there's many reasons for that. But the fact is, for individuals who are not in those populations, you need you basically need there's more burden of proof to show that you're not lazy. I I sort of saw that in the, you're not lazy or you're or not in, in intelligent. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, but the point is like they, we, we give that credence to certain individuals, but other individuals don't for many reasons. But the point is that this report can be least a, a weapon, uh, a resource. I want to say weapon. I don't want to be avitational, but really the idea of getting the, the support that you, you or your child needs to succeed in school and work and life, it is something about you have to make a case for yourself, unfortunately. And that's the thing or that's the situation we're in. So Ideally, this visual report, empirical report, plus documentation of the literature behind it, like this actual formal report too, will give credence to say, hey, maybe you just want to try it again. Like, let's go through this process again. Or take me seriously about not even dismiss me from getting diagnosed. Let's take this seriously. Okay. So Lydia's saying you could bring it to your school counselor or teacher. So many teachers mean well, but they haven't been trained specifically in this area. A lot of teachers have not been. Yeah, that's correct. So this is this is a great just so that you would be able to have accommodations or, or your child would be up, able to have accommodations. Um, uh, and uh, I think so. I think what he's working on. Uh, oh, there you go. Sorry. Um, is for this um, just readable attack dot com. Just readable like normal readable. Um, for me, I had I I definitely had a hard time reading as a kid. So I, I didn't get into reading until I was in college. It was really um, I was really really slow. I still am really slow. I prefer even though I have ear disease, I prefer to listen to my books because um, I can process them uh, quicker. Um, but in all of this, this is a huge kind of turn for you, Thomas, as a um, as a, a in what you were researching, right? As typography in a way, right? So 
I wanted to ask you what you've learned about yourself in these two years, or at least in this last year, what's been the most impactful thing um, that you've been learning and that's been impactful for your life or business or both? I mean, tough to say. I mean, God bless relationships. Truly. It was from meeting people, relationships, communication. So it's funny in my mind, it may seem like when you hit, when you gave me this huge, the story of my life, my professional career, it might seem so disparately different, but in my mind, it's all together because at the core of it, it's community and the core of it's communication and understanding and collaboration and working together. And I don't mean that in a buzzwords way. I mean, the demonstration of my life, every major outcome in my life came from taking a call from some stranger on the internet. <laughs> like, let's think about that. Uh, I think that's a, I think just if I, if there's anything I want to reflect on is the idea of the power of relationships and being open to experiences and under, and listening to other people who are not in your discipline, in your wheelhouse and taking it seriously. Because remember when Bonnie came to me, her proposition was very unusual from a type designer's perspective. It's very unusual. It's like, what? You make the bomb wider and it works? What do you mean? And say it's a looser, huh? But I actually took her seriously, listened to her. And I remember I was like, okay, I would never have thought of this. This is very unusual from a type designer's point of view. But the way you're talking about it, and just, I literally was like, I went into my body and my intuitions as a type designer. Like, I was like, no, this could work. I don't have any way to back. It was literally like a dark soul, the dark night of the soul in the sense that like you have like something calling you but you don't see it. It's just a big, a big, a big veil of darkness around you. You're like, no, I think this can work. And then trusting in a faithful kind of way, people that you may not, that you don't know that are on the internet. You got to trust them that you're going to work together and something good will come out of it. And so much did. Lexan came out of it. The Arabic support and Red X, Pro, Red X Pro came out of that. Now this, basically working, exploring computer vision and ADHD and dyslexia. Like i like, I was not diagnosed with these conditions, so I didn't. I don't have a personal experience, but I know a lot of people. For me exploring this, I've learned so much and talking to people who've lived this life with ADHD and dyslexia. It has a huge effect on their quality of life and their way they go through the world. And again, the fact that I can go through the same process of connection and communication and relationships, and now generate this readable technology. And where and this is just the beginning. I'm just being able to measure reading behavior and then identifying a status. It's just the beginning. Because then the next question, a very natural question, what happens, what happens when we show you different fonts? What happens when we give you different interventions, which claim to help you with ADHD and dyslexia? We could basically be a resource to help you basically help inform people to say, yeah, use these, intri- use these interventions. Because as you said, Diane, the education on literacy and managing ADHD for school children is, or just adults in general, just employers, teachers, managers, it's just next to nothing. If they could just give them a simple resource, just where to go to know how, if I have a, tra- a student who's dyslexic or ADHD, what can I do as very quickly to help them? And then we actually, and then the thing is our tool can actually tell you, yes, it is working for you versus not. That's actually very yeah. powerful. So it's actually, it's individuated. That's what's such a power, that's such a powerful thing about this instrument. It's not just averages. It's not just, we're going to just abstract out and one size fit all. We can find, and we can actually not just, guess that what works for you, we can actually know. Right. Using right. technology. And that's, a, I think, a very powerful thing. I love that. And it's a technology that most of us um, have with our computer or, um, a, you know, a webcam is not that expensive of a, 
of a it's much less expensive than a test at a some some other place, uh, another form of screening for sure, or amount of time it takes to get the webcam will be a lot less than it will to go get your three hour test and then the results the next time you go. So the paper is being peer reviewed, which I understand what that is because I'm an academic. So this just to kind of explain it for um, anybody else is that we will write something and this is how most um, new developments, new technologies, new things for medical or for uh, tech, uh, tech stuff, um, the sp space, anything, the body, um, you will write, you will have a finding, you will do these, uh, you know, pull all this together and you will write a paper. And then the paper is reviewed. You send it to a journal or multiple journals. Um, you have to actually wait here you can't be published in multiple journals at the same time usually so you would try for the the best tier journal in the the area and then um, it's reviewed by by experts that are in the field so it could be between two and five experts are peer reviewing this so that's um it isn't just like, oh, yeah, I like Thomas and his friend Richmond, you know, like we're just going to let him go in. They're actually they know what they're doing. Like they are not Thomas and Richmond. They also know what they're doing. But these the peer, that's why the peer is so important. So in design, it would be like if my mom was a peer reviewer. She's not a peer reviewer. She's not a designer. She thinks everything I do looks great and she would hang it on the fridge, right? So this is not a peer review, right? We know uh, a little bit understand. So then other people in the field, if they're, if we win an award at the type director's club or the art director's club or something, this is a peer review. So these are people top in their field. So it's just like that. So it, well, not exactly just like that, but you get the idea. It's kind of like for us winning an award in design. It's not just somebody that's just off the, you know, out of college learning about design. These are people who've are well well respected so that your your paper is being in is peer reviewed now and then um hopefully it'll be published in april or your you'll t they'll tell you when it will be published um and then a lot of times you present these findings at different um presentations or different um uh conferences that are around this topic right that's correct yes okay <laughs> um Man, Thomas is like, man, Diane, you can ramble on. Um, but anyway, so uh, I just wanted you guys to understand. So there, that's why maybe uh, it could take a little bit. But Thomas, when would this be available for people to be able to take this? We're planning test? to launch for March 15th. So yeah, that's why that you said that link before. And now I was like, oh, no, that link's not ready. That's going to be ready on March 15th. Uh, but we corrected it. The main generic site's open, so you can sign up on the wait list there. So for anyone who signed up there, we'll be sending out an email notifying the launch on March 15th. And you'll be able to use the product uh, and find out your results in 90 seconds. You get the results emailed to you same day, right? Mm -hmm, that's correct. Yeah. So which is also doesn't happen in the real world if you were getting a screening somewhere else, or at least not what happened for me. I didn't get the results right away. 
but I did publish my results from um, not the first lady, but the most recent lady that knows me really well. So they were also on my thing. I didn't want to, I, I wrote at the very end um, to be continued because I wanted to the suspense to be here so that people would see that I did have it. It was very clear that I was not a lazy reader. I just have ADHD. So um, thank you for sharing the all your findings. Thank you for actually making something that everybody can use. Um, and I'm excited to see. So for for 20 bucks, uh, you guys in 90 seconds can do what I did and see and then have it either have this as something that you can take with you to your next doctor's appointment and and help you to explain. So Thomas, thank you so much for doing this hard work. That's just different than typography, but maybe not exactly. Well, remember um, it all connects. It all, I see it all. It's all the same. It's a journey for me. And it's been, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. You know, I, I love coming with you, Diane, to come back. It's almost fun. It's, it's like I get to come share some stories once every couple of years to share my journey. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I never know where it's going to go. So I can't wait to see you again in a couple years and see what you're going to be. I know who knows. Well, maybe someday I'll get up to New York and um, we can get you to sign my copy. That'll be good. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, um, I'm taking next week off because I did two this week. So I will see you um, March, whatever the next Wednesday. What's nine plus seven? That's 16, right? I, I know. Dates me, I don't know. I, I have to look it up. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure um, next um, n- next week, the ninth, we won't have a podcast, but then we're just doing it. It's the artist month. So I hope you guys will join this. This one is going to be episode 405. So Thomas, thank you for being part of three episodes. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm, I hope that it gives people some hope. I can't wait to hear how you guys use this tool and if you there's I always leave it on the podcast so that you can have a comments underneath. And I would love to know what you what you think if you were if you were able to use it after the 15th. And um, anyway, I just hope that it it was very um, I really appreciate being able to do this early and also be able to share the results. So thank you for confirming for me. Oh, pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for joining the call. And like I said, like, Dan, one day we'll see each other in person. One day. One day. Okay. We had one question. I just realized. So, Jana yes, I see had that a in question. the Q&A. Yeah. Okay. So, with the, access being, with the access of being able to test to a wide range of people, how do you see the results in your work with, with fonts playing into accessibility features in the future? E-readers, machine fonts, materials for children in school? That's a great question. So, the short answer is... We'll be able to measure the eye behavior patterns and know which font works best for each child, basically in terms of its application. If I mean, I see a future where basically when children are like people, not just children, anyone's reading their email on their phone, basically you turn on the camera on your phone to measure, basically read your eyes, measure your eye your pattern as you're reading. And just like, you know, like your phone automatically dims the lights or turns on the lights based on the light luminosity of the room, or it goes mm-hmm. into blue light versus non-blue light, Yeah, your font will do the same when you're reading email. So the basically the font will adjust. Like notice that you're getting a little fatigued, for mm-hmm. example, 
and you're reading a little slower than your norm pattern, it would adjust the font, make it a little looser, maybe a little lighter, maybe a little darker, depending on what measures and then looking to see the results and then adjusting it on the fly for the subject. So that's, I mean, that's, that's my master vision for this technology. Obviously there's a lot of technical things we got to step. Um, the, on the most simplest point is the very fact that most people read their emails, read their phones very basically skewed. So remember the whole yes. point about making people not turn their heads? Yeah. Like the, the pilot study, the study that, the, that Google did with Nature Magazine, Nature Public, Nature Journal, the example was the, the camera was like this, supported up, like made vertical. So it's not based on reality of people actually reading normally. I don't doubt... I do. I totally am confident we will solve that problem technology-wise down the road. Uh, but that'd be a technical problem to solve. But once we solve that, yep, basically we'll know your. We can measure your eye behavior patterns as you're reading, and it could be basically sitting in the background, and you just turn it on and say, "I want to. I want the font to adjust when I need this," and it'll find what works for you. And that helps not just children, by the way. It helps adults. It helps any. It helps people in lighting conditions, basically fatigued. In any condition, to make a reading a more readable, com- more read, a more comfortable and effective reading experience. Because we're reading all the time, right? Yes. That that I just love that. And you actually had talked about that in Lexin long time ago. That, but you didn't say it would be maybe automatic. Or, but I remember you saying, you know, at the end of the day, you might need the the uh, letters spa- spaced out or darker. But now, wow, I can only imagine. I know my my phone goes to blue light on its own and it, um, you know, whatever the other thing, I, or, you know, you can, but I can only imagine if it could, if it could make the font bigger without me having to physically do something, but that seems like it should, because there is a camera unless it's mm-hmm. broken, you know, that's great. Know, whoopsie. Yeah. If your camera's broke, if you broke your camera on your phone, whoopsie, you don't get that feature. Right. But I just think that's really cool. So Thomas, thank you so much. And just so everybody knows, the link will be below. It's readabletech.com. And then on uh, the 15th of March, you can, if it's if you're listening to this or watching this after, it'll be readabletech.com slash ADHD um, will be where you can go. And I mean, the same test is for ADHD or dyslexic. So correct? It's not a different That's test. That's correct. But yeah, but, but generally adults... Usually their problems, usually adult populations have more an issue with ADHD than dyslexics. But yeah, you, you'll, as a bonus, you also find out if you're dyslexic or not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Well, Thomas, thank you so much. And thank you guys for coming two days in a row. And I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.